Welcome back to the Revolution in Ideology podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are here to talk about the stimulus struggle, an idea brought forth by Desmond Morris uh, in 1969. Uh, Morris was an English zoologist and ethnologist. He worked in art. He also worked in uh, television. And he was famous for basically trying to bridge the gap between um, animal behavior and human behavior, making, a, of course, the, the central thesis argument that, that humans are just animals. His landmark works include The Naked Ape in 1969, uh, excuse me, 1967, and The Human Zoo in 1969. This idea of the stimulus struggle comes to us from his work uh, in the 1969 book, The Human Zoo. Uh, anything you want to uh, kind of start with, Nick? What what led us to find yeah. Desmond Morris and this idea of stimulus struggle? What what kind of path did we take uh, to find this work? And honestly, what what drew our interest? So I two things. I had actually read The Human Zoo. God, I don't know, 12, fifteen years ago or something, um, and was always fascinated by it. But I'll do a caveat to that in just a second. But the real reason is because we've always wanted to do an episode on the thoughts of Ted Kaczynski as laid out specifically in the uh, Industrial Society and its Future, better known as the Unabomber's Manifesto. Um, but as we started dive, because we've used that in various capacities in classes and stuff like that, not that we, I guess I would say, advocate his uh, means by any means, but some of his ideas are definitely interesting. However, once we started digging into those ideas, we realized that none of them are wholly original uh, at all. In fact, they're basically just stolen and paraphrased and reworded. And so the ideas that we were really interested in studying actually came from Desmond Morris. So we figured instead of doing an episode on industrial society and his future, uh, we would just do one on Desmond Morris's uh, ideas. Now, before we jump in, though, I do want to say that the biggest critique of this book back then and that continues to this day, both of his books, is that they are completely unscientific. There is literally no scientific support for uh, the ideas that he presents. So he basically, as a zoologist, had years of experience in observing animal behavior, specifically animals in captivity. And his books basically say, I see similar behaviors between captive animals and human beings living in modern industrial society. And so he writes his books making these connections, but it's purely like anecdotal, right? His own experience in observing these animals, there's no scientific backing uh, behind any of these. And so you said, you know, he brought these ideas to the philosophical world. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Because yeah, not the scientific. Yeah. There's nothing anthropological. There's nothing <laughs> biological. There's nothing even like evolutionarily scientifically sound behind any of these ideas. So I just say that for our listeners and our watchers to keep in mind that when we're going through this, it's basically nothing more than thought experiments. But there are some interesting connections that clearly resonate with us and I think many people, which is why we're interesting in, uh, interested in talking about them. Well, and it opens up uh, the door for us to, of course, critique the fact that that not everything has to be scientifically empirical to have meaning. Um, mm -hmm. We've already done episodes on positivism and how much that singular like one truth lens can kind of also cloud our understanding of the world. So that's why we're OK talking about Desmond Morris here. And we do prefer mm -hmm. Desmond Morris. You brought up uh, Ted Theodore Kaczynski. Because Morris, at least ideologically speaking, doesn't seem to be like the extreme. I don't even know what Teddy, what we would call Kaczynski, this extreme far right 
terrorist, for lack of a better term. Like, I, I can't think of a better term. He's definitely term a far-right terrorist, but he's more of like a... He's and an Desmond, individualist. Desmond Morris is, is anything but, right? Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So The only reason I like that it requires a caveat is because people take thinking like this and they try to present it as science. And once they do that and then use these ideas, they can be very, very, very dangerous. Um, and like, let's just be blunt. It's people from the right that tend to make these connections. This whole discourse of like the alpha male and like, oh, it's just right. like scientifically nonsense. But they take the sort of logic that Desmond Morris employs in his books and his works saying like animals do this. Therefore, human behavior is also this. Like there's no science behind that whatsoever. Um, so it's interesting, like anecdotally, and it's a good thought experiment, but that doesn't mean that it, it has any use other than those those things, you know. And bearing in mind with a hegemonic lens like positivism, even when we are viewing animal species, like if we focus just on the animal and not on the human part of this or the, the other species part of this, we have to keep in mind that our socialization, our ideological socialization also impacts the scientific quote unquote empiricism or the questions we're asking of the animal world, which of course leads to already leading conclusions. So none of this is pure, right? Not even like yeah, I said. That's what I was going to say this for the end, but one of my main yeah. critiques is exactly that, that he like his lens is so anthropocentric that he anthropomorphizes the behavior of the animals to such an extent that like, it is it's pretty much nonsense, but right. still, and we know animals are superior right. to humans in, in every way anyway. Right. So, um, that's <laughs> although idea. part of his argument is that animals are just humans anyways, but yeah, yeah I got yes. it. All right. So let's kick this thing off. Okay. So we're not doing, in fact, the whole part of this regarding or the whole book regarding Desmond Morris. We're really only focused on this idea of the stimulus struggle because we, that's the one that resonates with us most. Mm -hmm. And, I would argue, again, it's not scientific, but the one I do think he hits the most, quote unquote, right, of course, subjective right for me, notes mm -hmm. with, right? It's the one that, 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 that just seems to make the most sense. Um, and it is applied a little bit to the idea of like surrogate activities and things like that from the later work, right, in an industrial society. So let's just kick this thing off. So the stimulus struggle. I'm going to read some direct quotes and we're just kind of going to go through it and, and talk about it a little bit here. So he Will you give me page numbers just so I can follow along because I have mine up here too. And I guess if any listeners ever want to read this book, they'll also know. Okay. So the stimulus struggle is, is in, in chapter six of the human zoo and it's on page 182. Yep. Okay. So he starts off, well, he doesn't start off, but in the second paragraph, he basically says the object of the struggle is to obtain the optimum amount of stimulation, stimulation from the environment. This does not mean the maximum amount. It is possible to be overstimulated as well as understimulated. The optimum or happy medium lies somewhere between these two extremes. So the first thing we have is like this, he's defining it. He's defining stimulation and why we as uh, uh, biological organisms require a certain amount, almost a perfect amount of stimulation um, to, to, to basically feel, I don't know if the word's happy, but uh, uh, content for lack of a better mm -hmm. term. What do you think of that? That first assertion, yeah, just his, in the definition. Yeah. His main premise, right, is that humans have evolved, not just humans, I guess, all animals, because he gives many examples throughout this right. chapter that are both human and uh, I keep saying human and animal as if they're different, but whatever. Um, that living beings have evolved to respond well to a certain level of stimulation from their environment. 
And he says the struggle is to, you know, happy or exist within that happy medium that is a certain level of stimulation. And if we have too little stimulation or too much stimulation, then that leads to all kinds of detrimental things, which we the struggle. Will get to. Yeah, yeah, the struggle exactly. itself. The struggle. And okay. so the stimulus struggle is this struggle to have the optimum amount of stimulation from the environment, to use his exact words. A little further down, he goes on to say, for the super tri tribesmen, this is not easy. Now I'm going to stop there and just add in this little uh, definition because I skipped over some things. Long mm -hmm. story short, he argues the super tribesmen are people that live in very concentrated giant cities, urban areas. So this yep. is what he's talking about. He's ar he's arguing right off the bat, like these are population centers that are too big. or are, We were never meant to live in popula population centers like a New York City or Istanbul or a Cairo or a Beijing or whatever. Choose your city, right? Pick a city out of a hat. And he's arguing to do this, we go through a process that make a, makes us what we what he calls super tribesmen. He, of course, is very old school. He's writing this in 1969, and he's very about the tribalism and the, uh, at least in his own anthropological and biological research, that like in our human origins, it was tribal and maybe clan-based. And, and so he kind of goes through that history. I didn't feel like going back and, going, and, and contextualizing all that. Just know when he talks about a super tribesman, it's people that live in giant cities. Maybe yeah, if you want more, I think chapter one of this book is yeah. uh, the whole chapter is on his his creation of that term, the super tribal and super tribesmen, etc. So if you want more, you go to chapter one. Okay. He goes on to say, it is as if we were surrounded by hundreds of behaviors, radios, some whispering and others blaring away. If in extreme situations, they were all whispering or monotonously repeating the same sounds over and over again, he will suffer from acute boredom. If they are all blaring, he will experience severe stress. So essentially by living in these environments like that, he, I guess, is essentially inferring are unnatural. They're, they're not supposed to be this big, that there is far just being here, just existing in this space. There's too much stimulus. Mm -hmm. And right off the bat, we're kind of seeing um, him lean into an idea that I don't even know if it had been coined yet. You can actually clarify this for me. We have an episode on it, narcotizing dysfunction. He's kind of leaning into this, that there's almost too much stimulation. And I, and again, you're the sociologist here. Had that term itself been coined yet when he's writing in 1969, or does it even matter? I guess it doesn't I don't know, matter. but I feel like a complete failure because I did not make that connection, which is hugely obvious when reading this. But I don't think, I think okay. if I remember, and I'll Google when you start talking, next point, I think that the original article where that coin was termed was in the 70s, but I'll check while you start reading Okay. whatever the next point is. Long story short, the idea of narcotizing dysfunction is the idea that all of the stimulus thrown at us, whether it's media or other people or neighbors or really everything, everything the urban environment is, um, it, it overwhelms us. But in a way, it's also like a drug. That's the narcotizing part. We're almost kind of like addicted to it. And the dysfunction part is when too much of it is, when there's too much stimulus, we um, undergo some sort of either ideal or material paralysis. Um, there's a little bit more to it than that. But again, uh, Nick led an episode in which we went through the whole idea of narcotizing dysfunction. So, okay, ahead. I lied. I was way off. The, the initial narcotizing dysfunction uh, article came out in 1948. Okay, so it was already a term. Whether or not Desmond Morris was familiar yeah. with it is, 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 we don't know. He goes on to then say, though, what the urban environment ends up looking like. And since he's compare, he's not even comparing, he is stating humans are animals. We might be different than other animals in various ways, whatever, like <laughs> opposable thumbs and some other things. But we are at our at our core, we're animals. And I agree with him on that. 
Um, but he argues that the urban environment becomes somewhat like a zoo. And this is where he starts making comparisons between the, uh, the non-human animals that he sees in zoos and humans in urban environments and basically argues we are zoo inmates. And zoos, as, as again, an animal advocate myself, are, are prisons. They're literal prisons for, for species, right? That's how they start. So it's really, really interesting because I don't know if you read the preface to the book, but he actually, so the preface is, so he wrote this in 67. It was republished and then he wrote the preface for it in like 1995 or something. So yeah, basically 20 something. years later. Yeah. He says that since the time when he initially wrote the book, there have been just a huge growth in the effort, like anti-zoo movements, right? And the freeing of the animals, which he's like not against by any means, but he says something interesting that I thought was somewhat like psychoanalytic, which I actually think there's a lot of psychoanalytic themes throughout this work. But he said he wonders if it's not so much about the animals, but that entire movement is somewhat deep seated in our sort of subconscious desire to free ourselves, which I thought was really interesting. No, I can totally see it. So making this zoo connection that the urban environment, the urban modern industrial technocratic environment is a zoo. And this is why we like Morris is, is as I use those terms, um, some of our listeners are probably getting um, small allusions back to a Marcuse or a Foucault or some of the other people we've talked about um, on this podcast before. He is another one of these social critics um, from that time period. That's Desmond Morris. He's not nearly as famous as the as the two names I just mm -hmm. threw out there, but he's definitely of that similar vein where he is making these observations about the way society is evolving and he's already seeing cracks in the way that human beings are engaging with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which is, is, is wild because in 2021, I would argue we're pretty broken at this point. Like we lost, but that's a, we'll get to that later. Okay. Yeah. His premise is that humans in industrial society behave just like animals in captivity because we're essentially, like you said, right. I mean, the whole title of the book is the human zoo. It's pretty obvious. He's saying that large cities and modern society is a zoo for human beings. Then that we don't naturally it's not natural, right? We, we don't naturally, we, we haven't evolved to exist in this kind of environment. He says in this highly artificial condition, zoo animals too are forced to switch from the struggle for survival to the stimulus struggle. When there is too little input from the world around them, they have to contrive ways of increasing it. What do you think of that? Yeah, so he's saying that animals that exist and human beings that used to exist in their, uh, I'm going to use the quote-unquote natural state, even though I know that's a hugely like loaded term going back to like, you know, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and et cetera. But let's just say that, we'll just use that term and forgive my sort of vulgarization of it, um, that animals and humans that exist in their natural state don't exist in a state of stimulus struggle because they are struggling to survive. So the daily activities that they take part in for their just daily survival sort of naturally has, has this optimum level of stimulus. It's not too low. It's not too high. Yeah. That just as they're interacting with the natural environment to survive, that they, their sort of baseline is this optimum level. However, once they are held in quote unquote captive, I mean, actually captive for animals and quote unquote captive for human beings, that they then enter into the stimulus struggle because now they have to seek out this optimum level of simulation from their environment. So one thing that's undeniable and all the social critics that we've talked about on this podcast from this era, again, the Marcuses and, and now Morris um, uh, and a whole handful of others, they all 
willingly admit that progress has taken place because of modern industrial technocratic mm-hmm. society. So that's that's nice. That's nice. We don't have to dig wells anymore or hunt for food or whatever. So basically what they're saying is our survival part is taken care of. And that's that's nice. But what they're also, at least Morris in this case, Marcuse has a way different argument, but regardless, what Morris is saying in this case is that also took something away from us. And we are striving to fill in that something. There is a void that is left. And what that void is filled with is all of the bullshit and nonsense that makes our lives probably a little bit more stressful and difficult than they need to be. Mm -hmm. So basically, since we don't have to survive anymore, we manufacture ways to try and like recreate that survival process. I'm going to play the stock market. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder. I'm going to get as many collegiate degrees as I can. Shoot, he was writing in the 60s, so he didn't know about this, but I'm going to live a virtual life online and, you know, whatever. I'm going to try and survive in this video game or whatever. Meet people on, I don't even know if The Sims is a thing, but whatever. I'm going to have a second life on The Sims or something. Oh, there is a game called Second Life. Yeah. but You don't know if The Sims are a thing? That's a thing. I don't think it. No, I know it's a thing, but I don't remember. I, it's not popular anymore. There was like a '90s game, wasn't it? Anyway, oh, whatever. I, Who cares? It's still a thing. <laughs> That's fine. Cool. Yeah. You get the idea. I'm gonna yes. shoot people in Call of Duty. Whatever. Uh, Daisy actually many... is a hilarious example in this well, scenario yeah, because we it's, may get it's... to that, but I don't even yeah. feel like getting into that. But like, <laughs> but it's not just the video games. It's no. I need X amount of likes on my Facebook because that is a struggle. It's it's I need whatever. I need to be retweeted X amount of times. I need this many people to put a cute little heart on my Insta or whatever. Actually, the, the, things... whole, the film which we critique, the social dilemma, right. is an interesting like uh, discourse on this as well, right? This the stimulation from the likes and the vibrating of the phone and the so forth, right? Social social networking. But this all, every one of these, while people may enjoy them, I'm here to tell all of you, and I hope it's wildly offensive, these all speak to the hollowness and shallowness of your actual lives. But for please like and subscribe our YouTube channel. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as we engage in our own um, um, stimulus struggle here, or as exactly. later it would be called surrogate activity. Okay, so anyway. No, I do think, though, that now that you, the way that you worded that made me realize that that's one of the big disconnects from Morris and from Kaczynski and Kaczynski's use of these ideas is that Kaczynski absolutely thought that we should rewind the technological clock, right? Not to say that he was against all technological advancements, but he definitely thought that we needed to go backwards to get back to like the roots of our humanness, where that's not what Desmond Morris is saying. Like you said, he's admitting, just like Marcuse and Foucault, et cetera, that there has been progress made, that like, I don't want to die from polio and so on, um, right. or COVID, um, but that that, that that are definitely have been detriments to our happiness as a result of how far we've gone technologically. Well, and, and everyone sees like, you know, every year the, the World Health Organization or the United Nations or whoever is running these 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 tests show that at least in some of the most modern industrialized society, like those happiness scores are just plummeting. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we might have all of these nice things, but it's certainly not uh, making our lives fulfilling by any stretch of the imagination. So, right. OK. Moving on, he goes on to say in a zoo or a city, it is clearly clearly these opportunist species that will suffer most from the artificiality of the situation, even if they are provided with perfectly balanced diets or immaculately sheltered and protected, they will become bored and listless and eventually neurotic. So he's saying that species that 
require these opportunist species. So humans, he would argue, again, whether you agree with this or not, this is where the science kind of isn't science anymore. He's just identifying opportunist species. It's not a scientific term. But humans would be one of those alongside like a pack of wolves or maybe a, a pot of orca or some those types of species require this additional like stimulus, maybe over, let's say, I don't know, what would be a good contrast? Well, why don't grazing. we talk about the difference between the, because he has two different things, right? He says there, right. there's two basic kinds of animals, the specialists and the opportunists. And he says the specialists, I'm just quoting, Quote, the specialists are those which have evolved one supreme survival device on which they depend for their very existence and which dominates their lives, unquote. So he says such creatures are like the anteaters, the koalas, the giant yeah. pandas, snakes and eagles, right? So the anteater has evolved clearly this very long snout where it can get the ants. The koalas can eat eucalyptus leaves, the snakes, right? The eagles. Can, so he says like these types of animals actually live in captivity I don't want to say, okay, because they're, they don't, we don't support the like imprisonment of animals, but he gives the example, like he says, the eagle, for instance, will thrive in a small empty cage for over 40 years without so much as biting their claws, providing, of course, they can sink them daily into a fresh killed rabbit, unquote. So he says, those are the specialists. The opportunists, he says, are not so fortunate. They are the species such as dogs and wolves, raccoons and coatis. Coatis is a funny example. You would only be a zoologist to use coatis, but and monkeys and apes, they have evolved no single Likewise. specialized survival <laughs> device. They are jacks of all trades, always on the lookout for any small advantage, blah, blah, blah. Then he says it's man himself who is a supreme opportunist. And then like Jared was saying, it's the opportunists that struggle the most in uh, captivity uh, because yeah. they have to seek out the stimulus that they previously had. Uh, in seeking out their own survival, seeking out the opportunity for them to survive, right? Yeah, I mean, small aside, I mean, he's oversimplifying some of those other species, more specialists, yeah. like an eagle, like, and I mean, eagles are, are some of the more intelligent creatures, quote unquote, now that we're measuring, trying to assess somehow animal mm -hmm. intelligence. They're, they're more than just seeking um, their talons into rabbits or fish, but whatever. Right. Moving on. Well, and I think the assumption that like they can live just fine in captivity without any ill effects yeah, is absolute like, nonsense. Like we know that's not true. <laughs> reminds me of uh, who is it brian reagan about like caging a bird like <laughs> essentially like hey thanks thanks for the uh what the environment here i yeah. have the gift of flight i'm sitting on a stick like right. it's just like know, even the biggest like i could fly anywhere yeah. in the world but thanks for this incredibly spacious aviary right yeah, yeah it's awesome insane. thanks guys yeah. all right all right let's keep moving though. let's keep moving all right so the stimulus struggle operates on six basic principles. So now we're going to go through six basic principles. Took us a while to get here, but we're here finally. Six basic principles. The first basic principle of the stimulus struggle, that humans in captivity, which he says are all of us in the urban environment, all of us in the modern society are captives in the zoo. Well, although this I want to say like, it's not as if like, if you live in the in rural society on a farm that you're completely immune to this. I think that nowadays anyone in the quote unquote modern nations live in a, some version, some extent of this zoo, right? They're captive in some way, just as a result of the proliferation of the internet and so forth. Right. Yo, absolutely. No, absolutely. So you don't have to live in a city for this to apply, you know? No. Okay. So six principles of the stimulus struggle for all of us that are engaged in the human zoo. Number one, if stimulation is too weak, you may increase your behavior output by creating unnecessary problems, which you can then solve. 
He goes on to say, we have all heard of labor-saving devices, but this principle is concerned with labor-wasting devices. The stimulus struggler deliberately makes work for himself by elaborating patterns that could otherwise be performed more simply or that need no longer be performed at all. This is one of my favorites. Probably, It might even be my favorite because basically mm-hmm. he's critiquing all of capitalism right now. Like that is, I, he, he needed one sentence to basically take the giant steaming <laughs> pile on the nightmare that is capitalism, right? Yeah, that was going to even further to like directly yeah. critique, which I'm sure will draw the ire of some of our listeners, but like obviously he's not critiquing this, but I think this is a scathing critique of like most all of Silicon Valley, right? All of the apps and the like everything, it's like so much of it is just absolute nonsense that's solving problems that we don't actually have. Right. And at some point, at sometimes creating the problems and then solving them. Right. Right. Silicon Valley is a great example. Every time there's an update, something else breaks on whatever your device is, and then you need another update. And then Mm -hmm. we're we're fixing things that that are not broken. Um, I mean, it's funny because I myself am an entrepreneur and like a techie at that. And like I read TechCrunch every day. I read The Verge and like I, I read them all every day. And like literally, like I first got into this world, let's say 25 years ago, and I have just watched it evolve to nowadays. I read TechCrunch literally every morning while I'm eating my breakfast. And I'm like, is this real life? These companies are raising tens of millions of dollars at hundreds of millions of dollars of valuations. Like this is literally a problem that no one has. Right. Like it blows my mind. We're cre- See, I take it even more meta than that. I take it from like, okay, so did we have a problem with communication before the telegraph? Did we have a problem with communication before the telephone? Did we? Mm-hmm. I would argue maybe, maybe not. I don't know how much happier now having this device in my pocket that can reach anywhere in the world. Like that, that all sounds good for like the globalists and things along those lines. But it's also uh, obviously a complete nightmare regarding constant stimulation, like overstimulation and things along those lines. We see that right here. Or again, the automobile is like my favorite thing to pick on, arguably the worst invention. Well, hang on, save that time. one because he uses that specifically for the other one of the other principles, which I like. I actually forgot that he did, so we will save yeah. it. Okay, good. Yeah. But like these are the things. We create problems that don't exist. Or again, in a modern sense, again, this is before or after his time, but in a modern sense, we use like gaming culture. Like that's literally a virtual problem that we have created to virtually solve, whatever that is. <laughs> I got to go fight that a guy over there, that virtual yeah. guy over there or whatever. Um, um, shoot, some of the more fun, uh, or fun, I don't even think they're fun. I don't play mobile games, but some of the more popular mobile games are literally like baking game. I've seen baking game or gardening mm-hmm. game or whatever, or farm. Yeah, my daughter like plays some games. It's thousands like, it's... on Facebook. Like I'm making, yeah. I, I have a virtual yeah. farm I'm, I'm tending to. My daughter plays this game that literally is like, it's an interior decorating game. So you get like a room and then you get all these like furniture and stuff and paint and you decorate the room and then people vote on like what the best room was. And I'm just like, this is real life. Like, yeah. Wow. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I do like number one. I do like point number one. Okay. So let's kind of keep going here. He goes on. I do want to say in this section, he, uh, talks about, which is interesting because this is basically exactly when Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique. Right. And he was uh, prescient enough to realize that. He says, quote, the understimulated housewife is another interesting phenomenon. Then he goes into 
like a few paragraphs talking about this. And it reminded me so much of the feminine mystique yep. that I just thought that was an interesting connection before we move on. That's all I want well, to say. No, I'm not moving on fully yet because oh, then okay. we get into this idea that um, David Graeber more clearly, um, uh, rest in peace, David Graeber, more, uh, more clearly uh, delineated um, and obviously much more recently, <laughs> bullshit jobs. I like that you have to say rest in peace, David Graeber, like blessed be his name. Yeah. I love David Graeber. Working is the modern super tribesman equivalent of hunting for food. And like the animal zoo inmates, he frequently performs the pattern much more elaborately than is strictly necessary. He creates problems for himself. So as mm -hmm. you were talking about with Silicon Valley and things along those lines, we create jobs for ourselves within our jobs to solve problems that probably never existed without the job's existence for itself. It is a vicious cycle of just asinine <laughs> behavior. It is literally like an animal in a cage. Yeah. No, it's like an, it's an animal yeah. in a cage chasing its tail like in a circle that's that's that is the boredom of of the urban environment yep that's what he's talking about um which is it's it's amazing he goes on to say thanks to the division of labor and industrialization he is driven he being human uh, is driven to carry out intensely dull and repetitive work the same routine thing day after day year after year making a mockery of the giant brain housed inside his skull. He is going to sit in his cubicle in a modern sense, filling out the same Excel spreadsheets or TPS reports from office space over and over and over again until he's dead. What an embarrassment of existence. But that's mm -hmm. what we do. I mean, you and I are guilty of this. We, our work is repetitive sometimes. Why do we all settle? Yeah, I mean, that's an answer he clearly doesn't have. I don't know if anyone has that answer. Okay. Anyway, he says sometimes there, and this is where the surrogacy comes in, there's surrogacy or substitutes, he calls them, excuse me, I'm using the, the later term from, what's his name? Substitutes for real survival activity remain substitutes no matter how you look at them. Disillusionment can easily set in and then it has to be dealt with. There are several solutions. One is ra a rather drastic one. It is a variation of the stimulus struggle called tempting survival. Basically, he goes on to, to say that oftentimes we will self-sabotage our lives because we're so bored. And he uses mm -hmm. a, a, some pretty interesting um, examples, right? Like even something like uh, uh, having an affair is like tempting the survival. Like we don't have affairs maybe because just we for just strictly just like the physical desire of wanting something new or different or whatever. He's arguing that is actually us hoping secretly we sabotage our current relationship so that we have something to fix. What do you mm -hmm. think of that? Or something to feel, really. Yeah, yeah. I love his examples because he says, the disillusioned teenager, instead of throwing a ball on a playing field, can throw it through a plate glass window. The disillusioned housewife, instead of stroking the dog, can stroke the mailman. The disillusioned businessman, <laughs> instead of stripping down the engine of his car, can strip down his secretary. The ramifications of this maneuver are dramatic. In no time at all, the individual is involved in the true survival struggle of fighting for his social life. Right? It's just perfect that we do these things because there is risk of getting caught, because it, it provides this other level of uh, struggle. However, the one thing that I thought of when I read his sentence, right, tempting survival, this wasn't as much of a thing, like nearly in the 60s, but now it's like the extreme sports, right? We mm -hmm. grew up when the X Games became a thing. And like, right. now, like you, you've watched Red Bull Media and like GoPro, like all of these people that are just going as extreme as absolutely possible, right? I mean, this fits so seamlessly into his this concept here. Well, and all these simpletons that feel like they need to like climb Mount Everest, right? They're wealthy, apparently, simpletons, but like this mm -hmm. whole idea, right? Like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you 
what are you doing? Like, why, yep. why do this? Um, okay. I mean, his idea here explains it, I think, well. Well, and it's, yeah. and, and I, I am being harsh on them because there is nothing more selfish and myopic than that endeavor because we already know the odds are uh, really heavy that you're going to die and then someone's going to have to deal with that death and then you're going to put the rest of your team um, in danger or they're just going to leave your body there. And then, I, I mean, we've already seen, right? I don't know why I'm picking on Everest, but I just, I apparently, <laughs> I just watched a couple documentaries on Everest and K2 and the amount of garbage and trash and dead bodies mm-hmm. that are now on those mountains is just, yeah, whatever. Okay. Moving on, still on this first part of the stimulus struggle, he goes on to say there is tempting survival by proxy as well. One form this takes consists of meddling in other people's emotional lives and creating for them the sort of chaos that you would otherwise have to go through yourself. That's fire. What do you think? Yeah, and he calls this the malicious gossip principle, right? He says it's extremely popular because it is so much safer than direct action. The worst that can happen is that you lose some of your friends. If it's operated skillfully enough, the reverse may occur. They may become substantially more friendly, right? Yeah, I... I, And we all know what is called like a yenta, right? Like everyone Mm -hmm. that has to like butt into everybody else's business. 100%. Like drama kings and queens and whatever other... Mm -hmm. Yeah, like we've all... we, We all know. Right. We all know what that is. Right. This manufacture of drama where there is none because we our lives are hollow and shallow. Mm-hmm. OK, so you seek out drama and yeah. you often might even create it yourself in other people's lives so you can live vicariously through their stimulus. You know, what and I mean? the Internet and social media has only made that worse since. Oh, time. God. Yeah. So much mm-hmm. worse. Um, I mean, it, it, it exists solely to fan those flames. In fact, I would argue. Yep. Um. I mean, it, like anything in life, like we had the promise of using the internet and social media as a better way to connect with like family and meet new people across the globe. And yet, what is it most used for, right? Just yep. go to anybody's Twitter feed and just the drama. Just yep. whoop. It's a nightmare. YouTube okay. comments, anything. Yep. yep. Yeah, the jacks, the comment. Please comment. No. <laughs> okay. The second form of tempting survival by proxy also just really hits home for for modern USers or really just modern society in general um, is less damaging. He says it consists of identifying yourself with the survival drama of fictional characters in books, films, plays, and on television. It's not unique to the modern era. Uh, people have always been entertained by quote unquote drama. I mean, mm-hmm. one need look no further than the drama of like an ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or whatever, right? Like we, I mean, read some Euripides. It's, it's based on, I mean, he's creating drama, but here's the thing. It, we are just, there's so much of it now. Like everything we do is meant to um, perform a substitute is the word or a surrogacy for what we're missing in the real world. Mm-hmm. And we have a pop culture now obsessed society so whereas in those examples you may go to uh, a, a nice euripides drama or comedy or tragedy maybe once a uh, shoot maybe even a month back in ancient athens or something along those lines we are pumping our brains full of it 24 hours a day at this point mm-hmm. um, yeah, and it's like you know the i can go on and pop on netflix and literally blow through a series in 15 hours straight right and for those 15 hours i have followed the emotional journey right i've lived vicariously through the stimulation of the characters in that show or whatever it is right and we're Completely. guilty of it ourselves we're oh, not necessarily above this i mean what did yeah. i just finish i know that i'm halfway through 30 rock which i didn't realize was as old as it was and somehow i missed it when it came mm-hmm. out in the whatever but i 
yeah, I watched five episodes last night without even blinking. It felt like I like I looked down and I looked at the clock and I'm like, oh my god, what just happened to the last two hours of my life? Right? Like, oh so, my god, dude, I cannot believe you never watched Thirty Rock. We need a whole episode on that. That's like one of my favorite shows ever. Okay, well, whatever. It's fine. I'm. It's <laughs> now on Netflix, and I'm I'm getting caught up in someone else's drama. Okay, so I'm, I'm filling in that. It's substituting for me. All right. Okay. Anyway, yes, we are pop culture obsessed. I don't think that's any shock to any any one of our listeners. Um, and it's it's this pop culture obsession speaks to again like the lack of fulfillment we all feel. So mm-hmm. we are trying desperately to fill an unfillable void. All right. Now that was all under the first part of the stimulus struggle. The second part of the stimulus struggle, a second facet, in his words. If stimulation is too weak, you may increase your behavior output by overreacting to a normal stimulus. This is the overindulgence principle of the stimulus struggle. Instead of setting up a problem to which you then have to find a solution, as in the last case, you simply go on and on reacting to a stimulus that is already to hand, although it no longer excites you in the original role. What do you think of this one? This one's pretty interesting, right? This is like nothing in your life changes, you just change your behavior. So you start reacting more, you you have a heightened response and reaction and behavior to the already existing stimuli uh, in your life. Um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting to think about. I'm trying to look through and find his human examples. His animal examples are like animals that are provided, uh, perfectly nutritious diet by the zookeepers and then we'll still eat everything that like the visitors give them right where they're not hungry they don't need the food and the nutrition it's literally just they just keep eating and keep eating and keep eating to stimulus that uh it just happens to be present right i mean his examples Um, are things like thumb sucking and then overeating and all of the other things he says occupational drinking these are the types of things where like I need this thing to survive or whatever, I guess in the case of alcohol, in that example, you don't necessarily Mm -hmm. need it to survive, but yes, we drink things, we eat things. And then we just, because we're basically bored is what he's saying. We will Mm -hmm. go overboard. Yep. Okay. So number two is not, I suppose the most intriguing for either myself or Nick. So we're going to move to number three. Third part of the stimulus struggle. If stimulation is too weak, you may increase your behavior output by inventing novel activities. This is the creativity principle. If familiar patterns are too dull, the intelligent zoo animal must invent new ones. Um, So what do you think of this one? This is really interesting. And I had a lot of comments here as I was reading this. It feels like Um, it crosses over into the substitute thing, but maybe not. It does. Yeah, it does to me too. But I think what he's saying is, I mean, the, the, the point at which this section really started standing out for me was when he says, let's see if I can find the exact quote here. In the human zoo, this creativity principle is carried to impressive extremes. I have already pointed out that disillusionment can set in when the survival substitute activities of the stimulus struggle begin to seem pointless. So he's linking to the previous section there. Often because the activities chosen are rather limited in their scope. In avoiding these limitations, men have sought for more and more complex forms of expression, forms which become so absorbing that they carry the individual onto such high planes of experience that the rewards are endless. Here we move from the realms of occupational trivia to the exciting worlds of fine arts, philosophy, and the pure sciences. These have the great value that they do not only effectively combat under-stimulation, but also at the same time make maximum use of man's most spectacular physical properties his gigantic brain. 
because of these, because of the vast importance of these activities uh, have assumed in our civilization, we tend to forget that they are, in a sense, no more than devices of the stimulus struggle. So I like saying, that section too. And this one yeah. paints the stimulus struggle a little bit more positive than the other two, I suppose, right. if we're throwing in the mm-hmm. sciences and philosophy and the arts and so on and so forth. So it's not all bad. Is that what we're saying? Yeah. And this excuse is like, me, I should say Desmond too. Morris is saying. Right. Yeah. This is uh, directly linked, obviously, to the assumption that I've heard in anthropology and other sciences. I mean, I even discuss this in my courses when we're talking about you know, the evolution of societies and so forth. This sort of like, I don't want to say trope, but this idea that culture was born out of essentially, we had this cultural explosion when human beings became sedentary, right? It's this common notion that when human beings weren't forced anymore to uh, be nomadic, that they then had the time and the free time really to, you know, become artistic and really musical and so forth. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't art and music and jewelry clearly in hunters and gathering uh, societies, more nomadic societies there was. But the argument goes that when we no longer had to move all of our stuff around, we really had the time to develop these more sort of cultural aspects. Um, whether you believe in that or not, that's this is kind of what uh, Morris is, Desmond Morris is arguing that once we became quote unquote captive in the human zoo, we created fine art and philosophy and science as we know it and so forth. Uh, because we were bored. Yeah, exactly. We were bored. So we, we, were bored. we had time to think about, you know, these greater questions and create these, the, the great art quote unquote and so forth. Yeah. I mean, it does get me thinking about the prior, I want to say like number two, though, it also, again, kind of creates that like vicious cycle where mm-hmm. like, does it create a linearity or a cycle in which we are then just kind of always just busy trying to like fix problems that don't really exist? I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, does the it philosopher is asking questions that didn't exist, you know what I mean? Yeah. For sure. And yeah. Are these advances nice, like running water and not having polio? Absolutely. But also, were these things a problem before we started gathering, right? Like, the, like that's mm-hmm. the question, right? We're, we're, we're solving problems that we're inventing the whole mm-hmm. time. Although I will say that Morris is part of his important thing is overpopulation, right? He, yeah. I don't want to say that he's like Malthusian in that yeah, regard. Yeah, he's not Thomas but... Malthus, but yeah. He does say that overpopulation is becoming an issue, specifically in his preface. He's talking about how quickly the populations double. And he says, like, at the time in 1990, whenever he wrote that, right, that the United States, uh, the population doubles every 100 years is its schedule. And I think that the UK was like 300 years or something like that. I'm trying to remember the preface, right? But he's talking about overpopulation and how that's an issue, right? Which is interesting. Uh, that's something to keep in mind, I guess. But anyway, he's saying the, one of the interesting things about philosophy, and to a lesser extent, I guess, art and science is no, not science. I guess I'll include science in there as well. Is that it's, it's never ending, right? There's never there's the continuous seeking for truth, and you, you will never find it. I guess, right? There's never a point when, like, oh my god, all the philosophers are like we're done here. We finally did it. We answered the questions and like we got it. And now it, philosophy as we know it is over, right? Like, that's that's not a thing. Just, just the way that science and philosophy are designed, the fundamentally, that's not possible. You know what I mean? So right. those two have the benefit of, I mean, I guess art too, right? If you're trying to find the perfect art, that, that's an endless task um, because it's so subjective. So these solutions to the stimulus struggle also have the benefit of being never ending, right? 
it's the it's the void that can never be filled which is kind of the perfect void if we're talking about finding something finding stimuli that will fill this uh this struggle it's kind of the perfect one really okay fourth part of the stimulus struggle if stimulation is too weak you may increase your behavior output output by performing normal responses to subnormal stimuli Number four didn't do much for me as I kind mm-hmm. of go through it. Um, most of his examples were, uh, honestly, they were sexual in nature is what he was mm-hmm. using here throughout. What were your thoughts on this? I'm going to let you chime yeah. in. I don't have, because as the historian here, he didn't use any examples that spoke to me. But as a sociologist, I know he probably spoke some to you. Yeah. And so he says, this is called the overflow principle. If the internal urge to perform some activity becomes too great, it can overflow in the absence of external objects that normally provoke it. This section in particular reminded me a lot of psychoanalysis. And just in general, there is so much Freud that's present that's what I was throughout kind of this. Too. Yeah. Definitely this section, but really this entire chapter um, talking yeah. about stimuli and so forth. Um, I mean, he goes as far as to say he, he doesn't ever use the term ego, superego, etc., but I think it's kind of like when something is so informed by another work, it's kind of like the inspiration that cannot be spoken. Like had he made use of Freud's terms, then I think a lot of his ideas would have been exposed as unoriginal. But anyways, that's a whole other topic. Um, So there's a lot of Freud in this and psychoanalysis uh, for sure. Um, But he goes on to like give animals of examples of animals and their sexual behavior of like animals in captivity will try to uh, reproduce with uh, different species as an example. Uh, And so then he gets into uh, human examples. No, I mean, he goes as far as like, he's talking about. uh, No, that's true. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. This is the section where he's talking about bestiality. Sexual activity, bestiality. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So he's basically saying in the absence of a substitute that both animals and human beings in this case will look for alternatives. So they will, um, I mean, he straight uses the example of the animals favored by humans are usually calves, donkeys, and sheep, and occasionally larger birds such as geese, ducks, and chicken. And he actually does provide some statistics to back this up. He says a recent American survey revealed that in that country, among boys raised on farms, about 17% experience orgasm as a result of animal contacts. Of course, so there is no citations whatsoever to back that up. Um, so who knows if that's even remotely true um, and what that number is today, I don't even want to know. But he basically is saying that this is a result of the stimulus struggle. And this is the overflow principle that if, you know, I mean, he's, he's essentially saying if our pent up sexual energy doesn't find an outlet as it normally would, that uh, we will perform this uh, response with other type of whatever is there, basically. You know what so I mean? being more of an Internet expert than me, what is the rule, the famous rule that if it exists, there's porn of it online? What's the rule <laughs> yeah, again? Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. If no, you there's a number. What rule number? Oh, I don't know the number. I don't know the number. Yeah. But that's the sort of like the meme, right? If it exists, if you can think of it, there's porn for it, right? Yeah. So maybe we could argue in this case, modern technology has probably saved some some zoo animal um, from being. However, I think it's interesting that he says the this is him directly. The sexual examples are reminiscent of fetishism, but this must not be confused with it. In the case of the overflow activity is as soon as the natural stimulus is introduced into the environment, the animal reverts to its normality. 
In the instances I have mentioned, the males immediately switch their attention to females of their own species when these become available. They were not hooked on their female substitutes like true fetishes I discussed in the last chapter. So he's saying it's not a fetish, though, that as soon as the regular stimulus is present again, that the normal behavior then immediately returns. So that's kind of interesting and probably like, like I think, disconnects it from porn uh, probably a little bit, right? Rule 34, by the way, in case you're wondering. Of the internet? Rule 34 yeah. of the internet? Okay. Yeah. So, okay. Fifth part of the stimulus struggle. If stimulation is too weak, you may increase your behavior output by artificially magnifying selected stimuli. Mm-hmm. Thoughts? This one he said this principle concerns the creation of super normal. In my opinion, yeah, he, yeah, he gets weaker as it yeah. goes further. But what are your thoughts on, on that? He said this principle concerns the creation of super normal stimuli. It operates on the simple premises, simple premise that if natural normal stimuli produce normal responses, then super normal stimuli should should produce super normal responses. Um, this, I think, is where he talks about automobiles. I'm trying to see if I can find that highlight, but he first oh, talks oh. about food. He says, yeah, he's like, everywhere you look, you will find mm-hmm. evidence of some kind of super normal stimulation. We like the colors of flowers. So we breed bigger and brighter ones. We like the rhythm of human locomotion. So we develop gymnastics. We like the taste of food. So we make it spicier and tastier. We like certain scents. We manufacture strong perfumes. We like a comfortable surface to sleep on. So we construct super normal beds with springs and mattresses. We can start by examining our appearance, our clothes and our cosmetics. And basically he's saying all of these activities that, that become more and more outlandish, I guess, is what he's saying um our reactions to again that 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 void that unfillable void that we're all yeah, making more and more extreme examples of stimulation and he talks about you know aphrodisiacs as a clear example then he talks about you know sleeping pills to produce supernormal sleep pet pills to produce supernormal alertness laxatives to produce supernormal defecation toilet preparations to produce supernormal body cleaning toothpaste to produce a supernormal smile um, etc. On and on and on. And he says, you know, the world of commercial advertising is a seething mass of super normal stimuli, which I absolutely love that quote. I had that. Well, and it's a complete uh, waste. Underlined. Like when you think about like yep. the resources that it takes to do this. So for example, even if we use the automobile, which again, I've already labeled one of the worst inventions, which of all I found time. my let's, highlight. So I'll go back to that in a second. Let's just take it for, at his example. Mm-hmm. Did the Model T get people from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what is the point of a Bugatti? What is the, yeah. what is the point? How many resources and have been over whatever the hundred years of development it took to get there? What a waste! Why do we need to go two hundred plus miles an hour? Like no one's like that. That's a pointless thing, completely pointless endeavor. So he says, I have defined a supernormal stimulus as an artificial exaggeration of a natural stimulus, but the concept can also be applied in a special way to an invented stimulus. And then he goes straight into the automobile, he says, what about the side of a shiny new motor car? This can be very stimulating too, but it is entirely artificial, invented stimulus. There is no natural biological model against which we can compare it to find out if it has been supernormalized. And yet, as we look around at various motor cars, we can easily pick out some that seem to have the quality of being supernormal. They are bigger and more dramatic than most of the others. Manufacturers of motor cars are in fact just as concerned with producing supernormal stimuli as manufacturers of lipstick. The situation is more fluid because there is no natural biological baseline against which to work, but the process is essentially the same. Once a new stimulus has been invented, it develops 
a baseline of its own. Keep in mind, he's writing this in 1969. Now it's just like asinine, right? We have right. lifted trucks with 20 inch rims and like 44 inch tires like the, and like supercars, like you said. And these findings kind of back like the assumption that we all feel like the bigger your pickup truck and the bigger the, the, the fake genitals you put on it or whatever, and the bigger your don't tread on me <laughs> sticker and Confederate yeah, I don't even flag think about are. That. Think about the connection. Right. No, but I mean, think things. about it. Like yeah. that is a symbol of individuals mm-hmm. that really have nothing like that is a void. Mm-hmm. And that is a void. Like the bigger the, the, the bigger the truck, the bigger the void. Mm-hmm. Right. And perhaps, a, yeah, like, and, I mean, and, there's and, so and, much like penis envy and like stuff and the overcompensation yeah, and all of these things. Yeah. And, and, and the bigger, like the flags or whatever it is you have to attach to the truck actually reveals the more in doubt you are of your philosophies. So you right. have to shout them at other people. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, that is an embarrassing culture. Um, by then, and, 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 and I'm so thankful the rest of the world doesn't have to experience it because this weird, alpha wannabe super white pickup truck driving thing is is a uniquely american phenomenon maybe canadian to a lesser extent but whatever he says the application of the supernormal principle is therefore widespread and penetrates almost all of our endeavors in one way or another freed from the demands of crude survival we wring the last drop of stimulation out of anything we can lay our hands or eyes on uh the result is that we sometimes get stimulus indigestion the snag with making stimuli more powerful is that we run the risk of exhausting ourselves by the strength of our response. We become jaded. So like in just anything that is natural at this point is, is taking a back seat because apparently it's not good enough. We, we need to mm-hmm. continue to exceed whatever this is, whatever baseline we've set. Well, yeah. And that's, I like that his use of the term baseline, right? Yeah. Because he says, you know, the baseline hasn't changed. He uses the example earlier that we didn't touch on with his lipstick, right? That the mm-hmm. natural pink lips of a woman are this like indicator of like sexual, you know, virality, he says. And he says, so we take those and we invent lipstick so that we can make them from their natural pink to a bright red to make it even more extreme. But he right. says that with natural examples, there is a baseline and it is the natural lips in this example. Those do not change. But our extremism changes over time. He says that the interesting thing with these artificial stimuli that we've created, like the automobile, is that there is no natural baseline on which we are moving further and further away from, that it's not bound by a natural baseline. We purely can just change it as much as we absolutely want, and it becomes more and more and more extreme, and that the baseline itself is also changing at all times. Well, and it, of course, continues to rise as we, quote mm-hmm. unquote, advance, right? Like everything becomes... Well, I mean, your example of the automobile is perfect, right? The Model right. T had, I don't know how many horsepower, but now, like, I'm sure the average car has a hundred and something horsepower, right? Like, for sure. Well, and the supercars yeah. have thousands. Right. And even the cars, yeah, whatever. Let's We'll get I off I guess there's probably no... Before some, like, car head calls me out, there's no production car, I'm assuming, that has thousands of horsepower, but it's a lot. It's a thousand, I'm assuming, is... Some supercar. Well, uh, no carhead's going to call you out on that. They've already wrapped it around a light post or something. Um, okay, <laughs> moving on. Uh, okay, so 
the other thing I like on this one is if we wish to be entertained by books, plays, films, or songs, we automatically subject ourselves to this procedure. It is the very essence of the process we call dramatization, and it's attached to stimulus extremism. So that baseline continues to go up. One need look no further than an average television show in the Western in Western civilization, if we want to use them as the example, of the 1950s or 60s, like an I Love Lucy or something along those mm-hmm. lines, or what and compare that to the drivel that we are now. And I'm not saying I love Lucy was some sort of like artistic masterpiece, but like how much more. <laughs> More like action and extremism and drama and all of this shit is being flooded into the audience's brain in a modern television show. I mean, Kat, like, we could even stay within the same genre and like the earliest Superman film or like the early Batman compared to like the Dark Knight and the Marvel series. And like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And yes, there's a certain level of like, well, special effects have changed. Well, yes. But think about the just amount of stimulation that your brain goes through sitting through a modern Marvel movie compared to the earlier manifestations of those things, right? How many billions or millions of dollars did Transformers make? It's not even a story. It is literally just special effects blowing things up. I mean, it is the cliche Michael Bay, and we all make fun of it, and yet we still go to it. Right, because it it provides us with extreme stimuli for three hours or however long, right? Way too long. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) An embarrassment of, of writing, but whatever. Okay. Uh, and then he goes Although on. Oh, it is to, interesting. Never mind. Never mind. I would go down a film say, rabbit hole. Let's he, not This do one it. he goes yeah. on with quite a bit. Actually, I probably underrated this one a little bit in my first. Number five has been pretty strong. He goes into fashion as well. We'll probably dodge fashion, but he does argue that fashion is kind of an issue. In fact, let's talk about it real quick. Fashion. The great problem for fashion designers is that their super normal stimuli are related to basic biological features. As there are only a few vital zones, this creates a strict limitation and forces designers into a series of dangerous repetitive cycles. Male fashion cycles follow a rather different course. The male in recent times has been more concerned with displaying his status than his sexual features. High status means assess, uh, access to leisure and more charismatic costumes of leisure or sporting clothes. So we're saying basically like obviously um you know some of the fashion goes in cycles but that cycle is and he's gendered he does get criticism for gendering many of his arguments oh 100 yeah he does get a lot of criticism for it but he does say that and in this case that the the critique for the cycles we see regarding women's fashion is based on whatever stimulus um is most appealing to the males at that time regarding female sexuality. And then the second part for males, it's the opposite. Their fashion is dictated by being able to um, peacock for lack of a better term. What do you think? Well, so he says, like I said, I I also criticize him for the binary paradigm here, but regardless, yeah. yeah. I mean, what you said is correct, right? He says that women's fashion evolves to accentuate whatever portion of their body men of the time find sexually appealing but he says the signal for men that use i mean men use fashion to signal their success right like you said peacocking and he says the interesting thing about that is that we have a society has changed over time to where the ultimate signal of a man's success is his ability to partake in leisure And so you have to be wealthy in order to go on vacations and travel to other countries and like so forth. So he says the interesting thing, the epitome of leisure is sport. And so men's fashion has evolved over time. It's cyclical based on sporting and what is the popular sporting. So he says like the men's sport coat now, which has like infiltrated the business world, right? Business casual is like a sport coat started as literally like the hunting coat in like the earlier, you know, English society. 
And so that men's fashion is merely just an evolution of taking what used to exist in the sporting world and making it into the fashion world. And it goes from being like high fashion to, you know, like dinner fashion to like daytime fashion to being in the business world. I actually thought this part, like I'm not super into fashion, but I thought this part was actually really, really fascinating. Whether it's true or not, it's pretty interesting to think about fashion evolving in that way. And I can see that it actually being uh, ringing true in many different regards. So yeah, I think we both kind of sold number five short when we first started this section. <laughs> yeah, it's actually pretty fire. All right. So let's close this out with our last and maybe like kind of like the mic drop point that he's making. And it is number six. If stimulation is too strong, you may reduce your behavior output by damping down responsive responsiveness to incoming sensations. So the first five have all been all of the things that we've been using to basically make up for the fact that urban society um, has made like surviving, at least in our most basic, like whatever um, um, Maslow's hierarchy too easy. Mm -hmm. So we continue to make things up that, that just are completely extraneous and necessary. Number yep. six is now we've done it too far. Not the first five have taken it too far and we're shutting down now. It's yeah, shutting us down. Up to this point, we have been considering the five principles of stimulus struggle that are concerned with raising the behavior output of the individual. Yep. Occasionally, the reverse trend is called for. He says this is the cutoff principle. So basically, it's reducing the amount of stimulus that you're taking in, right? He says, while active, they can relieve their tensions to some extent by performing stereotypes. These are small ticks, repetitive patterns of twitching, rocking, jumping, swaying, or turning, etc. He's talking here about animals in captivity, right? That the animal uh, many times will just go and go in the corner and cover its eyes, right? Try to remove all stimulus as much as it can. And over time, they develop these ticks, right? And we all have seen this, right? It's the elephant swaying. It's the these physical things that the animal, quote unquote, invents to make it uh, comfortable with its stimulation, right? It's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Go ahead. He said, uh, I don't know where you're going to go, but in the extreme in humans, we resort to artificial aids. We take tranquilizers, sleeping pills, sometimes so many that we cut off for good, overdoses of alcohol and a variety of drugs. This is a variant of the stimulus struggle, which we can call chemical dreaming. To understand why it will develop, uh, it will help to take a look at closer to natural dreaming. Then he goes into what the function but, yeah, of dreams, et cetera. I was actually going there. He goes on, okay, he says cool. like, if the inmate of the human zoo becomes grossly overstimulated, he too falls back on the cutoff principle. But I was going to take a little bit of a different different approach to this. Mm -hmm. I like the idea of chemical dreaming, especially since we just recently did a couple episodes on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I want to pause here and say like, when we think about like, again, a modern society, this is the most drugged society in, in, in all of human society, in all of human history. And there's a reason for that. These things are, aren't just helping. They're merely coping mechanisms. And when I say drugged, I'm talking about everything from caffeine to nicotine to Xanax to Ritalin to whatever, opiates to alcohol. THC yeah. to alcohol. How many drugs does it take the average human to get through a day? To be blunt, and I want to be unequivocally clear here, a healthy society and a healthy individual does not need to take that many drugs just to get through a work day. Like that that's just not the case. And I think the fact that we are this drugged, and those are all drugs, sugar, if we want to throw that into the mix, these reveal how unhealthy and how unfillable the void is and how overstimulated we are and how overstimulated we have to make ourselves to continue to receive this much stimulation. And yeah, I want to clarify something like yeah. that comes up in this argument so much is like, 
from the alpha male school, right? It's like, oh my God. While they're drinking a monster energy drink, they're doing this. Oh my God, you take antidepressants, you're just weak, right? (laughs) Instead of understanding that like all of these, the consumption of drugs, every single one that Jared just, you know, alluded to should signify to all of us how broken society is. That like, I have to take these drugs, like you said, just to make it through a regular day in our society. That's a problem that we should all agree is wrong. Now, I will not say that there right. clearly are biological... Cue the coffee cup. Don't talk to me before I've had my caffeine. Like, like- Exactly. A hundred percent. Now, of course, that I will not deny that there are biological issues that we are lucky that we have medical interventions that can help to address and that i will of course never suggest that there is no mental illness but we're not talking about a covid vaccine or a polio we're not talking about that that's not i even say like there are mental illnesses that need to be medicated that's fine that need a biological you know that's fine and i actually think that people need all kinds of medications to deal with the society but the point is that the solution should not be more medication it should be to deal with the society that is causing us to have to undergo this treatment in the first place. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, okay. He kind of closes out, uh, any thoughts that w- will tie this back to this idea of dreaming that you alluded to. I didn't love the idea a lot, but mm-hmm. I mean, it is kind of how he closes this out. He says some of these drugs, these chemicals eventually mean to help us sleep because sleeping isn't about rest. He says it's about dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and that dreaming reaching another state of consciousness. And that's what leads to what he argues here are more dangerous or something. He does the drugs that give us like an artificial chemical dreaming, right? The LSD is probably he's writing in the sixties. I'm assuming that's what he's talking yeah. about. I mean, he, he, I mean, any thoughts on that? I didn't like this argument a whole hell of a lot. Get out but... Real fast. Just so our listeners know his main points. Cause if they don't want to read the book, he basically says that he buys into the school of thought that the function of dreaming is essentially it's like the filing function for our brains. So this uh, thought, which is really common, is probably the most common uh, function of sleeping and dreaming that people buy into right now. I said buy into like it was a cult, but that people believe right now <laughs> is that we get all these stimulation throughout all of our day. And the function of sleeping and dreaming is that that gives our brain time to file away all of our experiences and our memories and et cetera. And then we wake up refreshed and so forth. Um the science behind sleeping and dreaming actually is kind of like an, uh, a wide open field right now. Like we don't actually have an answer for that, which is really interesting. But anyways, he says the problem with chemical dreaming, right? These sleeping pills and so forth is that it's a false dream and a false sleep that when we are sleeping because of uh, sleeping pills or et cetera, that our brain doesn't get to perform that filing function. And so we don't wake up refreshed. It's just this never ending cycle where our brain doesn't get to deal with all of the stimulation that it's going through on a daily basis, basically, is his premise. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, like the whole rest of it, it's not scientifically sound, but that's fine. None of his book is. Um, but it's interesting to think about, right? Uh, yeah, so the function of like nowadays, yeah, and in the 60s, psychedelics and uh, sleeping pills and so forth. Yeah, chemical dreaming. Uh, it's kind of interesting. It's right. one of the ways that he says... We use these things to shut down the stimulation that we are being bombarded with, right? Yeah, it's interesting. So we've got five parts of the stimulus struggle that are all seeking to uh, compensate for the void. And then the sixth one that is now showing that maybe we've compensated too much. Okay. Mm -hmm. He closes out with this thought, and I'll close it out and see if you have anything kind of to 
to add here, but he says, you may remember as we close out this, this, this chapter on the stimulus struggle, you may remember that at the outset, I said, the stakes of the game are high. What we stand to win or lose is our happiness in extreme cases, our sanity. The over-exploratory innovator should, according to this, therefore be comparatively unhappy and even show a tendency to suffer from mental illness. Bearing in mind the goal of the stimulus struggle, we should predict that, despite their greater achievements, such men and women must frequently live uneasy and discontented lives. History tends to confirm that this is so. Our debt to them is sometimes paid in the form of the special tolerance we show towards their frequently moody and wayward behavior. We intuitively recognize that it is an inevitable outcome of the unbalanced way in which they are pursuing the stimulus struggle. As we shall see in the next chapter, however, we are not always so understanding. Um, I don't know that I even needed to read that last sentence because I don't know that Nick and I have any any goal of going into the next chapter of this book. Our main focus, our, our favorite part of this whole thing is just the stimulus struggle. The rest of the arguments he make makes are, I don't know, they just didn't speak to us as much. But I do like that idea that 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 what we are seeing here is some of these behaviors, and, and we would now use this term, are being normalized. And we're just letting it go. Like, cool, you just want to take billions of dollars and fly a rocket to space for 10 to 15 minutes. And we tolerate that <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's his example. pursuit of the stimulus struggle. And maybe we're vicariously living through that part of the stimulus struggle. But if you think about it, that is, that's, that's super stimuli, right? That's like, oh, I mean, think about that. That's an example that I like to pick on, but but there, I can't even think of anything more ludicrous. Well, here, I'm going to read this quote real fast. That's before what you just read. He says, it's interesting that we are much less sympathetic toward a man who fails to adjust to a low level activity than we are to one who fails to adjust to a high level. A bored and listless man annoys us more than a harassed and overburdened one. Both are failing to tackle the stimulus struggle efficiently. Both are liable to become irritable and bad tempered, but we are much more prone to forgive the overworked man. The reason for this is that pushing the level up a little too high is one of the things that keeps our culture advancing. I want to put that in the context of like the capitalist narrative, right? We are now, we're, we're fine with the person that addresses the stimulus struggle by overworking themselves, by working themselves to death, by working 90 hours a week and, you know, et cetera. But we are far less nowadays even, and definitely in his time, far less able to forgive the person that takes the opposite approach and tries to reduce their stimuli, right? Someone says, you know what, I'm just going to work part time. That's enough to live on and I'm going to be happy. We as a society have such a massive problem with that. Like we literally can't handle it. We wear it like a badge of honor, which exactly. shows how dysfunctional our society is. When mm -hmm. so, when you ask somebody how they're doing, ah, I've been so busy. I've been doing X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's a badge of honor. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is gross. How'd we get here? Take us yeah, out. Totally. If you want to read more, uh, you can find the Human Zoo, uh, the PDF online. It's pretty easy. Uh, both Morris's books were highly, highly influential. I think I read somewhere that the the uh, Naked Ape sold something like 20 million copies or something outrageous. Uh, and actually, uh, whatever, uh, uh, this uh, I'll stop. Um, so yeah, you can find it online in the PDF if you really want to. You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com. You can find us. Uh, we have a YouTube channel if you're not already watching this on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for Revolution and Ideology. We post all of our podcast episodes and other videos that we create uh, for some of our classes and just things that we are interested in. If you're listening to this in a podcasting app, uh, leave us a rating and a comment. That really will help us to find listeners. And if you really, really love what we do, you can find us on Patreon and support us there. Uh, Patreon.com slash Revolution and Ideology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our uh, Patreon supporters. You really, really do inspire us to keep doing what we are doing. 
That's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.